You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 535 of this podcast. Today is January 11th, 2023, and also a Wednesday. Being a Wednesday, I am halfway through my week. You are halfway through your week. Whatever you have started to do, you are either in the middle of doing it or you are just about done. And from here, you just do mop up for the rest of the work week, if you're like me. Typically, my Mondays are, let's get reoriented, let's get back into the swing of things. Tuesdays are, all right, now it's time to work the plan. Wednesday, it's mostly done, and it's just the mop-up. Thursday, finishing touches. Friday, whatever else didn't get attended to. I don't know how you arrange your work week, but that's how I approach it. And I think if you scale that up, and this is a phrase I keep using because I think things should be scalable. Our expectations should be scalable. Our objectives should be scalable. Our plans should be scalable. If you scale that up, how you manage the rhythm of the work week or the weekdays, if you're not necessarily working a nine to five, but you've got family, you've got kids, or you are kids who are doing your schooling mostly between Monday and Friday. If you scale up the workflow of your week, to longer periods of time, bigger projects. What does that look like? And that's one of the things that I am tasked with, not officially, but it's implied just by the nature of what I've been handed in terms of my new work scope. I started a new job. I left my former job back in October, started a new job doing controls programming, primarily special projects. And by special projects, what I mean is here is something that we have wanted to do for a long time. We've wanted to do for years. We've tried various iterations of it and we've never quite gotten it to work right. Can you take a look at it and take all the time that you need and make it work? If you can make it work here and you can give us one representative sample proof of concept that yes, indeed, this can function the way that we intended, even if we haven't gotten it yet, if you can do that just once, well, then we will standardize it. If we like it, we'll standardize it across the field. Now, they might change their minds as even just the past couple of months experience has shown me with a few things. Uh, you know, Somebody somewhere with decision-making power and authority might change their mind once we've got the proof of concept down and say, ah, no, never mind. Let's not do that anymore. You know, but it, it, it at least proved you know, that, that it could be done. And if they revisit it down the road, they can say, okay, yep, let's dust this off. Let's put it into practice because it's been proven that it can be done. Now it's, it's worth noting. I have a, a sidebar when it comes to special projects also being scalable, but I'll save it for a minute while I explain that the workflow is different when you are dealing with special projects. The workflow is different. It's not, hey, sweep this floor, and that might be your morning if it's a big floor, and you'll know when you're done, and we will all know when you're done and how well you did, but it should only take you this morning. It's not like, hey, I want you to chop and stack this wood and turn it into firewood for us, and we know how big the stack is and how quickly you process it is going to be depending on your strength and endurance and work ethic, but it shouldn't take all week. You know, you'll get most of it done today. If you don't get it all done today, you can finish up tomorrow morning, whatever's left over. You know, special projects are not like that, particularly if they have been in the wings for weeks, months, years in some cases. Some of the things that have been handed off to me so far that I've got to work. If they've been waiting in the wings for weeks, months, years, those special projects, we don't know how long it's going to take to figure it out. We just don't. On the front end, there's a generalized idea 
that we're most of the way there, but there's just a, a couple of points, a couple of particulars and specifics that are not gelling. And it can't work until we find those missing pieces and tweak them, change them out, remove them, add something that's missing, etc. You don't know how long it's going to take. And at the end of it, you can't necessarily <laughs> transpose how long that last special project took to the next one, because the next one is going to be special. That's why they're special projects. The last one wasn't like the one before it, and it also will not be like the next one. And so you have to, if you're going to do special projects, be willing to have that uncertainty. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what it's going to take, except it's going to require consistent effort applied to the problem on a regular schedule of some kind, however long that schedule lasts, however many hours that takes, however many weeks that takes. Now, in the course of working these special projects, even for a couple of months, not for the first time, I've worked on special projects in the past, other places I've been in the oil and gas industry, I enjoy. Generally, there are challenges, there are stresses for sure, but I enjoy special projects. They are interesting problems to solve uh, always. And there's a, there's a sense of satisfaction for one, this is the way I look at it. If you figure it out and everybody else tried and failed before you, but you got it to work, as a man, as a competitive man, I like that. I feel like I've just won. Also, too, you, you can be overwhelmed. You can be crushed by the expectations and people asking you, hey, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? How long do you think it'll take? How much more will it take? You can be crushed by the expectations. You can be daunted by the fact that nobody else has gotten this to work. Or, and here's how I reframe it to be able to press on, you can say, you know what? Nobody else got this to work. So <laughs> it's no worse <laughs> until I get it to, to work. It's no worse than it was when I picked up. It's not any worse. It can only go up from here. If it's not working now and I get it to work, it can only go up from here. But see this actually, it, you know, this is where I'll say that I think that approach to special projects needs to be scalable as well. So in my particular context for what I do at work, I am trying to get automation and controls and instrumentation and programming and the process all to match, to be able to achieve something that has not been achieved, whether that's measuring, whether that's monitoring, whether that's controlling, so that the whole process is safer and more economical and less frustrating. That's my job. That's what I do. And I think, okay, if it looks super complicated on the front end, and then time and again, when I work on these special projects, you drill down into the particulars and you can find places to break a big problem into smaller problems and then tackle each of the smaller problems. If I know that that's the case with these special projects that I do to provide for my family, then why not with other special projects? Why not with other complicated problems that nobody else seems to be figuring out? Why not with the social controversies and political controversies of our day, the controversial debates and dilemmas and conflict? Why not? And just like with what I do, you know, lest anybody get the wrong idea, what I do for a living I'm not coming into it thinking that success looks like I have solved all of the problems for everybody for all time once I get this done. No, that that's unrealistic and that is outside of my capabilities. And that, if you think that way, it's either that or it's worthless, then you won't even get off the ground. You won't make any progress whatsoever. You will not figure anything out. You will be crushed by the overwhelming weight of that impossible challenge. But if your approach is, okay, I'm going to make it just this much better. I'm going to make it just 2% better. 
the overall grand scheme of things, the whole operation is going to be 2% better or 5% better or 8% better after I finish my piece here, if I do this well. Well, maybe this special project is 2% better. And the next one is five. And the next one is eight. And each one of those, those sound like really small numbers, but they add up. What doesn't add up is when you give up on process improvement because it's all or nothing. That doesn't add up. That does not move the ball down the field. You know, imagine if a sports team, you know, here our church recently has been talking about getting families who are involved in sports, their kids are involved in sports, the parents coach, or maybe they're you know, overseeing a sports program at the school, their school administrators, or what have you. Getting all of the above to think in a missional way about sports. Can you use your athletic pursuits? Can you leverage those to the end of honoring Christ, representing Christ, making disciples, evangelizing, providing a good testimony? How can you be intentional about your approach to sports to where it's not pulling you away from your Christian faith? In fact, it becomes a mission field for you as a Christian. And imagine, right, to take that as an analogy and just use it here for a moment. Imagine a sports team or an athlete, if you're into more solo sports. Imagine an athlete being told, hey, you haven't won any games yet this season. What are you training for? And telling the athlete, hey, you know that all of your competitors are really strong and really fast, and you should probably give up right now. Imagine telling an athlete who is training to compete that if they haven't won all of the games of the season, if they haven't already won the championship, they shouldn't even try. Imagine telling an athlete that. Imagine telling a team that. Hey, guys, if you're not going to win the entire kit and caboodle, if you're not going to be the best in the world, if you're not going to win every game and every season and every championship and every tournament and every scholarship, don't even bother. What would we say the outcome of that will be? You will discourage participation. You will crush the dreams of aspiring athletes who might have many reasons for wanting to participate. One, they might just enjoy the game. Win, lose, or draw, they enjoy playing. They might enjoy their friendship with these kids that they play with or they train with or they compete against. They enjoy the camaraderie. They enjoy getting to spend time together working on a shared objective. And now you've just said that that's worthless. That is not worth the time and effort and intention that they pour into it. If they don't win the tournament, if they don't win all the tournaments, all the championships, 100%, shut down every attempt to score on you, and you've got to score every point nonstop, that would be a terrible, terrible approach to either being an athlete and staying motivated, or if you are coaching an athlete, setting them up for generalized success. Now, take that and transpose it into your work life, transpose it into engagement with relationships that you build in the community or in your family or in your wider circle of friends, transpose that into something you do as a hobby in a creative way, transpose that into your reading list. If you're a reader or your music, if you're a musician or your engagement in academia, if you're an academic or political work. If we tell aspiring athletes or musicians or readers or workers or friends that it's all or nothing, where's the grace? Where, where is the encouragement in that? That is the opposite of encouragement. Also, too, it makes it impossible for growth to happen. How can growth happen if a thing must be fully mature before it begins, or it won't be allowed to mature. It won't be possible for it to grow if it is either full-grown or doesn't count. And really, this applies to every facet of human life. The only one, the only being, the only person 
who needs who needs no maturity, who needs no growth, who needs no grace is God himself. He's not getting better with age. He's not a fine wine. Our understanding or appreciation or enjoyment of him may improve with time, but that's about us. That's a factor of our maturation, not his. He's fully mature and complete and whole. And the rest of us are at best works in progress. More typically, we sometimes work at it, but fumble through. And so I look at the pessimistic mood that I hear so many friends and family speaking from, embracing, not just every now and then, but time and again, when matters of importance on the macro come up and forget economic recession, I hear depression. I hear it in the bleak outlook. And so you might say, well, maybe we are, right? Maybe that's accurate. Somebody stubs their toe and they have a pain to look on their face. It's because it hurts. It does hurt. And it hurts because they actually did stub their toe. But to that, I say, you have to, you have to be able to have a vision of what life will be like beyond just the stubbed toe or even something worse than a stubbed toe. I know this is not the context of the passage when we read that we do not mourn as those who have no hope. It has to do with, in the New Testament, in Paul's writings, mourning someone who has passed. For instance, my wife just got news that her great uncle Ralph has passed away. And she loved him dearly growing up, would go over and ride his horses. He had Belgians, big draft horses, big, beautiful horses. And he was a sweet man, owned a trucking company in Hillsboro for years and years. He passed away and it is sad. It's painful. It's appropriate to mourn. It's appropriate to grieve. The context of what Paul writes about us not mourning as those who have no hope does not mean that we don't mourn, but it does mean that our mourning keeps perspective regarding eternal life and hope. Paul writes in that passage about some who say there is no resurrection from the dead. And he quips that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ is raised. And in that case, you are still dead in your sins. And in that case, our whole faith is in vain. But Christ has been raised from the dead. And those who are in him will also rise with him and attain the same resurrection. By the same power of God which raised Christ Jesus, we also will be raised from the dead to bodies that are incorruptible to live eternally. Now we see as through a glass dimly, then we will see face to face. And that, my friends, family members, that does not just apply to individual people we know. It also applies to good things, good situations, good opportunities, good circumstances. There is an importance to not being fatalistic as it relates to our handling of the truth and to our not growing weary in doing what is good. You know, someone I know here recently called me naive as we were debating back and forth whether there is any hope, any reason to hope whatsoever that America will endure as a nation while we live here. So I kind of hope so. I kind of, you know, not just in any old circumstance. What I mean, obviously, by America enduring is that America repents and turns from her sins so that true liberty is possible. True liberty is not what we have right now any more than we have a free market. It's a free market in name only, but it's bound and fettered. It's rigged. This is not a free market economy. This is a crony capitalism, not capitalism that we have experienced these decades. And our liberty is not a true liberty, not when we are slaves to sin. But I hope that America endures 
And the only way that America can endure is by turning from sin, seeking God's face. And when I think about America potentially doing so, I think to myself, it could, by God's grace. This country could, and I hope it does. And in the meantime, I should work expectantly, hoping that it will. And if it doesn't, then what is that to me? Is it my fault? Or am I a fool for having worked towards that? Did I waste my time? Did I waste my energy? Am I naive? Really now, am I naive to hope, to work? How would it be if we said to young children, life sucks and then you die? I hate to say it, but we do. We do tell children that. That's why suicide among children is even a topic these days. We tell them in many ways, and some of them believe it, and they just get to the point as they've been told the point is. How would it be if we said to young men and young women, vanity of vanities, as if we had only read certain parts, the worst parts of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, a chasing after the wind. What does man gain by all his toil in this life? Yes. You know what? Yes. The same event happens to the wise man as to the fool. The same event happens to the righteous man as happens to the wicked man. And then we don't read to the end. In fact, not only do we not read to the end, but we tell those who have read to the end, you're hopeless. Oh, you poor, sweet, silly person looking on the bright side or expectant, hopeful. That's foolish. They're there. It's cute until it gets annoying. And then I'm going to call you a fool. I'm going to say, you lack wisdom. You lack experience. You lack judgment. Not only am I not going to listen to you, you should stop talking. And other people should stop listening to you if you don't stop talking. How would that be? How would that be? It, will that come to a good end? No, indeed. Unacceptable. I do not accept that. I think lacking experience, wisdom, and judgment can take the form of being unreasonably hopeful. Having a rather too rosy picture? Sure. It can also take the form of having a rather too bleak perspective. And I've seen this. I've seen this and I hear it again and again. And it is the very definition of growing weary in doing what is good. It's selfish. It's proud. It is not faithful. It is a thing to be repented of, particularly when it's externalized to others who are rolling up their sleeves and trying to do something. Now you could say, okay, where are our efforts best directed? Where will we get the best bang for our buck? Some people think the answer is by volunteering with charities. Some people think the answer is running for politics. Some people think the answer is getting into education. Some people think the answer is going to work, just doing their job well, being a pleasant person, being a good friend to the folks they know. Some people think the answer is loving their families well, serving in their church. Some people think the answer is to make reasoned arguments and read and study and apply the lessons of history or try, right? Try. You know, my wife printed off a sticker for me for my planner. My best self is what I'm trying to be. So I got this self journal created by a company called Best Self. And we've got this Cricket Maker 3, which is super cool. Thank you, Mai Takai. Good job, Lauren and Evelyn and Eli. But Lauren's printed out a sticker with my logo for the podcast. Is that a waste of time? Is that a waste of ink? She printed out a sticker with the logo forever after, Evelyn, ever after. Is that a waste of time? Is that a waste of ink? Oh, what's the point? Vanity of vanities. Ecclesiastes. She asked me for some good quotes, like this one from Calvin Coolidge. 
We cannot do everything at once, but we can do something at once. She asked me for quotes like that, and then she made a sticker. And the sticker is sitting on the inside cover, the front cover, of my journal. And I look at that quote, and if I don't take care, I shrug. We cannot do everything at once, but we can do something at once. Yeah, what's the point? Why do anything? Nothing matters. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. Do you know how I know? Because God did not make me with hands so that I could twiddle my thumbs. He didn't make me with feet so I could sit on my butt. He didn't make me with a mind so that I could fill it with a whole lot of hopelessness or a heart so that I could just sit around depressed all the time. He didn't create me with eyes so I could shut them or ears so that I could close them or a mouth so that I could keep it to myself. Stick the tongue to the roof of my mouth and call that a day. He didn't give me the breath of life so that I could hold my breath or hyperventilate. He didn't give me time on this earth to waste it, saying, what's the point? You know, there's another quote I gave my wife, this one from Dwight D. Eisenhower. In preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Do you know why I like that quote? I like it because plans change. And if your plans can't change, well, then you're going to lose. If your plans can't change because you're stubborn or you're lazy or you're hopeless, you're going to lose. You'll be right. You'll be right when you say, well, it's all over. Yeah, because you threw in the towel. You gave up. You lost because you played to lose. With an attitude like that, yes, yes, you're absolutely right. And don't come telling me, I told you so, when it works out that way. When you made it possible for it to work to that outcome. By refusing to get your head in the game. Do not grow weary in doing what is good. And to that, an increasing number of us say, what's the point? Why? Why bother? What does it matter? Vanity of vanities. Like they read only the most depressing parts of Ecclesiastes, and then they stopped because it got a little too deep. There's another quote I like here. If you don't know what to do, do something. That also made it into a sticker on the back inside cover of my planner. That one was my grandpa mullet. If you don't know what to do, do something, even if it's wrong. And some of us not only need to hear that, also don't want to hear that. Call me naive, call me stubborn, call me thick-headed. Here's what I would say. It's not because I lack experience with fatalism that I reject your fatalism. It's not because I lack wisdom that I reject what you are calling wisdom. I'm not convinced that what you're advising is wise or that your perspective actually is so clear, or that your judgment is sound judgment. I am trying to be cheerful as I tell you, no, I don't think that's correct, because throwing in the towel, like I keep hearing we should do, boy, howdy, it looks an awful lot like the servant who buried his talents in the field. If you disagree, well, carry on as you were, and we'll see. We'll see. God knows. God is my judge. God is your judge. We'll see what we hear. If we're servants of the Most High, if we are, some who think they are servants are going to hear, you wicked servant. And some are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In season, out of season. Right now, I hear a lot of people talking like we are out of season to discuss, to deliberate, to reason, to make entreaties, to make appeals, to make arguments. I hear it's a waste. No, it's not a waste. It's not a waste. You know how I know it's not a waste? Because I actually sat down on the encouragement of my son Eli last night and this morning, and I watched the clips that are embedded in that yourtango.com Right up that I was telling you about in last episode. I watched the 45 to one hour clips, 45 minutes plus, less than an hour long, boys alone first, then girls alone. 
I watched the videos and I would not have written what Miss Quinn did. Megan Quinn, she did the write-up for YourTango.com and she didn't do justice to how the girls performed relative to the boys. As a father of eight, I walk away from both videos shaking my head and thanking God that my children have parents to teach, to disciple, to instruct, to correct, to protect, to provide, to parent. It looks different. The wickedness and folly of 10 boys in a house for five days looks different than it does when it's 10 girls in a house for five days, but it is definitely there. To sugarcoat it, just because these are girls and you want to support a certain conclusion, I agree with my son Eli. He was pretty irritated about it. I am pretty irritated about it as well because it's not, it is not the case that these girls are just paragons of virtue compared to the boys. As a matter of fact, the boys at the end of it are told, why did you destroy the house? Uh, you know, the girls maybe were doing more toxic things. One boy, he was the scapegoat for everybody's messes, destruction. Michael. Yeah, it's always Michael's fault. Michael started it. Yeah, but you all, though, let's be honest, you all trashed the house. You did. And it was not all Michael. No, no. Every group wants a scapegoat, unless they have Jesus, in which case they already have the perfect atoning sacrifice. Apart from Christ, everybody else is looking for somebody to blame for their problems and their own sin, their own folly. But those girls, some of them very, very sweet. And it's all the more toxic that the girls who were not so sweet, who were just there to be obnoxious and lawless and wicked, harassed. Those girls who were trying to be helpful, to serve the rest of the girls in the house, to do the right thing, harassed them. Why? Because they were making them feel bad, by contrast. Because they were more popular, and they were going to be more popular. Because the good girl doing the good thing was going to make the bad girl wanting to do the bad things feel bad and look bad. And the irony is that the bad girl doing the bad things not wanting the good girl to do the good things that would make her feel guilty for not doing the good things that she ought to be doing too. The bad girl being ugly and toxic to the good girl is actually what made the bad girl look bad. And it discouraged the good girl from continuing to try at all. And was the house better for it? No, it got trashed just like the boy's house did. And then the girl left. And as she's announcing that she's ready to leave, she's just over it. She wants to go back to her parents, as she should. Then you get several of the other girls who had been quieter to that point, saying, oh no, you can't go, don't leave us. And then they're heartbroken when she's gone. But they didn't do enough, speak up enough in the process to get her to stick around. They didn't support her. They didn't have her back like they could have. What do we say? Vanity of vanities? No. As a parent, I watch this and I say, boy, howdy, I really have got to be speaking truths to my children, around my children, I really have to set a good example all the more because the world is chock full of kids like these. Here's another thing too. You know, consider, if you will, if you watch these two videos, the very end for the Boys Alone episode where the parents come to pick up their boys from the house and are talking with them and hugging them and happy to see them. And that's all great. But look at the faces that the mothers make, many of them horrified because they had the ability to tune in and watch their sons for the five days and see what they were doing and seeing what they were up to and how it was going for them. And these mothers, several of them said, why did you destroy the house? Why did you tear it up? Why did you trash it? Why did you do that? horrified. Their little angel apparently is not so angelic as they thought, not so inherently good, actually needs the rod. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Here you go. Here's what happens when you don't. A father disciplines the son that he loves, we read. These boys trash the place. And I look at that as a father of seven boys, just three fewer in my house 
day in, day out, and then filled that house for five days. And I think I need to set an example for my sons and I need to train them, not first and foremost, to be able to shoot and run and fight, storm battlements, capture forts, unless you have a broader view of what a fort might be. You know, two books on my reading list for this year, written by B.H. Liddell Hart. One of them, Examining the Life of Scipio Africanus. If you don't know who that is, he was a Roman general who finally defeated Carthage. Rome and Carthage had this long-standing animosity and rivalry and enmity. And history would have gone a very different direction if Carthage had won out against Rome or if their stalemate had continued on indefinitely, each of them taking their half of the Mediterranean, each of them fairly evenly matched. Hannibal could have, given the right circumstances, conquered Rome, actually. He was a brilliant general. His trek over the Alps with those elephants, showing up unannounced, by surprise, right in Rome's backyard, that was one of the most brilliant maneuvers, strategies, tactics in all of human history. Scipio Africanus defeated Carthage. You would not have the Roman Empire as we know it today made possible, but for not just the military achievements of Scipio Africanus, but the character of Scipio Africanus on and off the battlefield. Before, during, and after the battle, he set the example. Not just him, but he especially. And B.H. Liddell Hart, who rewrote the rules of strategic thinking for military types and planners of all kinds, B.H. Liddell Hart wrote a book about Scipio Africanus. Greater Than Napoleon is the subtitle. Another book by B.H. Liddell Hart, which I intend to read this year. I have it on my plans, in my planner, his book on William Tecumseh Sherman. And be it known, Sherman was instrumental to the Civil War as won by the Union forces against the Confederacy. William Tecumseh Sherman was instrumental to the abolition of slavery in these United States. William Tecumseh Sherman was a crazy person. He was <laughs> prone to fits of madness and breakdowns. And Grant had a drinking problem. It was a very poorly kept secret. And Grant and Sherman, supporting one another, having each other's backs, won the Civil War. And B.H. Liddell Hart wrote a book about Sherman. And I want to read that book. I've read a rather excellent, I thought, biography of U.S. Grant by Ron Chernow. I want to read some biographies of Sherman now. And I think to myself about B.H. Liddell Hart's maxim. His whole premise is a upending of Clausewitz. Clausewitz held that you should attack the enemy head-on in strength as hard as you can, and if you're repulsed, hit him again and again, and again, and again. Overwhelm them with superior numbers. Hart saw what that translated to, and it was an incomplete strategy. And he talks about this in Strategy, the Indirect Approach. It was an incomplete strategy because Clausewitz died before he could finish the book. And everybody who adored Clausewitz was working from an incomplete playbook. And so you have these self-inflated egos in uniform, in World War I, sending wave after wave after wave of husbands and fathers and brothers and sons to their deaths in the killing fields of Europe, charging machine gun nests that mow them down wave after wave after wave, again and again and again and again. You have an ungodly number of men dying in the trenches due to disease, illness, exposure, Infection, 
in a stalemate for torturously long periods of time because they're generals who were too stubborn to know when to change the strategy, just kept on trying to do the same thing again and again and again, expecting different results. And you know what? If you want to be fatalistic, be fatalistic about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And if we think that throwing in the towel, well, hey, we haven't tried that yet. Let's try that and see if that works. Mm, no. To that, I ask, how long will you throw in the towel? How many times will you throw in the towel before you admit that that doesn't work either? Why not skip to the part where you try something that's actually going to work? This is why my grandpa used to say, if you don't know what to do, do something, even if it's wrong, but do something, man. This fits like a glove with Eisenhower's observation about planning versus plans. In preparing for battle, I have found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Why is planning indispensable? You might ask. How can planning be indispensable if plans are useless? I'll tell you. The answer has everything to do with you being familiar with the battlefield, with your own forces, with the conditions, with the enemy's forces, with what he's likely to do, to where when he does the unexpected thing, or when your guys do the unexpected thing, or the weather changes, you recognize it, and you adjust. You hit them where they're not expecting it. You're not there where they were expecting you. Where they thought you were weak, you're actually the strongest. Where they thought you were the strongest, you might be really vulnerable, but they don't know that. And before they have a chance to get wise, you hit them where they're actually weakest because you've got the best battlefield intel. And if you don't have the intel, well then, yes, I suppose you should probably just quit now, particularly if you're not going to go and get the intel or listen to the people who have gotten the intel. If you want to keep on losing, then keep on doing what you've been doing. That has been losing. And if you want to lose even faster with less fatigue, just surrender. That maybe we just don't want to win. Could that be? That it's too much work? It's too much work to win. Maybe that's the real reason sometimes. B.H. Liddell Hart was not naive. And he wasn't a coward either. Somebody might say to B.H. Liddell Hart, well, we can't fight these guys. Look, look how strong they are right here. And his response to that would be, yeah, but that's why we're not going to attack them there. We're going to attack them over here where they don't have any guard posted, where they don't have any defenses. That's why we're going to go after their supply lines, actually, like William Tecumseh Sherman. We're going to go after their supply lines because if they don't have supplies, then they can't fight. <laughs> we're not going to shoot them in the front of the tank where the armor's the thickest. We're going to maneuver around behind and shoot the tracks off the thing, or we're going to aim for this vent that has to be open. It can't be armored or else it won't vent. And the same applies, the same applies to our present circumstances. I'll read for you Psalm chapter two. I was encouraged. I was encouraged by my friend and the neighbor, J.P. Chavez, here recently, this morning, actually. I was feeling just a little bit down and wondering, what is worth investing myself in? Also, what is the outlook? Am I naive? Am I wrong? Am I foolishly optimistic? Psalm chapter 2. See what you think. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, 
O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Not my opinion, not wishful thinking, not an overly rosy view of the future, not naive. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. Also, we don't grow weary in doing what is good. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How can Paul write that in Galatians? Of all places, don't you know what the Galatians are dealing with? Paul, how can you say that? For in due season we will reap if we do not give up? What are you talking about? The wicked servant who buries his talent in the field reaps nothing. He gives up. Because that's the flip side. That's the other side of the coin here. If you do grow weary in doing good, then in due season you will not reap. If you give up, you will not reap in due season. And the expectation is that there is a due season. There is. My father was a farmer. And oh, by the way, I am the farthest person from trust the government. It'll get better. It only can go up from here. I'm the farthest person from that. When I think back to my childhood, seeing my father farming in eastern Montana with his dad, with his brother. That was all my dad ever wanted to do was farm like his father, his father's father, forefathers all the way back as far as I can tell in my genealogy research on that side. We're farmers. That's what my dad wanted to be. And a corrupt local official made that impossible, made that untenable, destroyed my dad's dream. And then he needed a new dream and he needed to do something else with his life. But my parents did not shrug And they didn't say, well, what do you do? They fought. They called for accountability. That corrupt government official lost his job. And maybe it didn't get us our farm back, but all the other farmers and ranchers in Dawson County, Montana, were the better for it. It meant something to them. That's worth quite a lot in my estimation. But before my dad lost the farm, sold it, really, had to cash out all the equipment, all the tools and supplies and the farm itself. Before he cashed out, walked away. I remember him going out to the farm when it was planting season and planting. And the only reason somebody plants seeds when they're a farmer is because they expect in due season for those seeds to grow into a profitable crop. You should not anticipate a crop in the harvest, a crop to harvest, if you don't plant when it's planting season. But even there, you plant in the season for planting, and it's not immediate. It's not. You snap your fingers and voila. All right, let's go gather it up, take it off to sell. No, you got to watch it. You got to protect it. You've got to take care of it. And even if you do, even if you do all of that, you could have a hailstorm, you could have grasshoppers, you could have weeds, you could have the neighbor cutting the barbed wire between his property and yours and letting his cows in to eat your food that you are growing to support your family, like a jerk. True story. But you might do the planting. You might watch over the crop. You might do everything you were supposed to do. And a wildfire comes through. And it's gone. A hailstorm comes through and it's gone. Grasshoppers come through and it's gone. You might do everything that you should do and you lose it. But I'll tell you this. You don't plant, you will definitely get nothing. There's a chance you won't have a harvest or it won't be a great harvest. You won't get enough rain as the year goes along. The plants will be not so good. The yields will be not so good. There's a chance you will lose money even if It's just a little. You don't plant? Well, then you're not a farmer and you will not harvest. And the more I study history, the more I take the long view, the more I think in a biblical way and I look at the arc of biblical history and I look at 
a day being as a thousand years to the Lord or a thousand years as a day, the more I meditate on the big picture, that some things only happen in generations or over the course of several generations, the less concerned I am about whether this podcast, for instance, is successful in the way that people are expecting it to be or advising towards the end of it being. The less concerned I am about whether my book ever sells a million copies. If it sold a hundred copies and all hundred of those copies were helpful, on the mark, persuasive, encouraging, edifying, God-honoring, if a hundred copies blessed a hundred families, but I know that God called me to it, I'm content. I'm committed to being content. And even if I struggle with that, I am quite convinced there is a greater blessing. More will be accomplished in that mindset than go big or go home. Like it's got to be a hundred percent right from the jump or don't even bother. It's a waste. No, 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 no. We need to take the long view. We've got to think, what could God do with this in my children's lives? my grandchildren's lives. A righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I was just talking about this with Mike Bonnell, one of the two pastors at Summit View Community Church, where we are members and attend here in Greeley Evans. I was just talking with him about how I've thought about that passage differently in recent years. The righteous man doesn't leave an inheritance to his children's children, first and foremost, where money is concerned or property. He leaves an inheritance of righteousness, humility, wisdom, dedication, self-control, moderation, respect. So even if that's all my refusing to be fatalistic and throw in the towel, even if that's all that is accomplished, that's enough. And if more besides, great, excellent, fantastic. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. O King, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. Not to you. To our God? Yes. Not to you. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.